continuing our series in John, and we've come to Jesus' burial. And today, I've invited Anne to join me in doing a presentation which is going to be a little bit different to the way we normally do it in this series. So, first of all, let's look at the text. And we saw last time that that John marked out the relevant passage with a phrase at the beginning and a phrase at the end that, that bracketed that particular thing he wanted to highlight. And so we see he mentions in verse 31, it's the day of preparation, and then he ends this section by once again referring to the day of preparation in verse 42. So let's read the scripture, shall we? Then, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was an especially important one, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have the victim's legs broken and the bodies taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men who had been crucified with Jesus, first the one and then the other. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and blood and water flowed out immediately. And the person who saw it has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not a bone of his will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he went and took the body away. Nicodemus, the man who had previously come to Jesus at night, accompanied Joseph, carrying a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 75 pounds. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it with the aromatic spices in strips of linen cloth, according to Jewish burial customs. Now, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, And in the garden was a new tomb where no one had yet been buried. And so, because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they placed Jesus' body there. So let's look at the much shorter description in Luke. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the rock where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. So Anne is going to give us, uh, uh, 
some really, really interesting information about the archaeology. And the, this is, is useful, not because we need the scripture proved, but because it's encouraging to our faith to see how well this is supported in what we find in history, and also helps us to visualise and conceptualise what was happening there. Thank you, Andrew. Um, We read about Jesus being placed in this tomb, and um, in in Jesus' time, it was only the rich people that had these tombs that were cut into the rocks. Poor people were just buried, like the rest of us, in holes in the ground. You just dug a trench, you laid the body in, wrapped or in a coffin or however, and it was buried that way. But Joseph must have been a wealthy man. We know he had this um, rock-cut tomb, which apparently was new. Uh, whether that means the entire tomb was new, or just there was this, th- the one area that Jesus was laid in was new, really doesn't matter. Now, these tombs were cut into the solid rock. So they were carved out, there were rooms carved into the rock, and some tombs were really extensive. They had numerous rooms, lots and lots of places, because these would be for families. There'd be lots of places for different bodies. And there were two basic types of tomb. One kind had, one kind had, round the room there would be little, um, Oh, sorry, Andrew, this reminded me that I should have told you these. There we go. There were two types. So one type, round the room, they had lots of little body-sized tunnels that you could just slide a wrapped body into. And technically, they're called, those ones are called kokim or loculi. Uh, I've just said endways, so you know which way the body is going in. The other kind were like um, a niche cut into the wall that had a, a body-sized bench. Uh, at the bottom of it. So let's have a picture. So if you can see this, this is, this is just one, one side of a wall of a whole room that would have had these slots, these little tiny tunnels in the side, and you would put the body in, and then usually they were sealed up. And the other kind were like this, there's this, there's this, these technically called arcosolium, arcosolia, and they have a bench, here's another view. So you can see the body would be laid on that bench at the bottom, it's exactly the length of a person, and there it would be. Now, which kind, we know exactly which of these two kinds Jesus was buried in, because it says in John 20, do I have a slide for this? It says in John 20, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. So we conclude it must have been one of these bench-style ones, because if it was that sort of tunnel kind, there would have been a little angel just squeezed in at the end, and that really wouldn't have worked. So we know that this was the, the bench type of thing. Now... Access to these burial chambers could be blocked off by a stone which would um, 
uh, could be rolled into place. And we've actually, there is some that still exist. So let's see. Oh, wrong button. There we go. And you can see the groove with the stone in it there. And that stone would roll into place to cover the entrance to the tomb. That one, I think, is actually Herod's tomb. Wouldn't want him getting out. Um, and so this is another one. You can see the stone would roll across. But it's not a very big opening. You can see why Mary had to stoop to look in, to see inside the tomb. I, I, you couldn't stand upright and walk into one of these things. But when you got in there, there was the chamber with the, the benches or the little tunnels or whatever. So we can see that this, would, this, this all fits exactly with what is being said in the scripture. So when the body would be wrapped in these strips of fabric, it says that Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus in strips of linen with all the herbs and spices and things. Now sometimes people used um, fabric with something quite precious and expensive in, in those days because there's a lot of hard work put into making fabric. And sometimes people would, use re- would recycle old clothes to wrap the dead in. But it specifically says, Matthew says, that Joseph wrapped Jesus' body in clean linen, which rather implies that it was new. So Joseph was just giving Jesus the best possible treatment. And so these, um, so then the body would be laid on this bench. The flesh would then decay from the bones, and after a year or so, there would just be bones on this bench. And a second burial would take place. And so you would gather up these bones, and they would be put into some kind of, like a niche under the bench, or. Uh, a niche in the wall or sometimes in a separate room the bones were all stacked up Uh, and so this was sort of the the, this dealt with this was the final dealing with the body Um, later actually after Jesus time uh, there became this fashion for putting the bones into a a, a bone box um, uh, which was a kind of copying things from the Romans but that actually that fashion didn't in fact last very long But about 20 years ago, a couple of archaeologists discovered a tomb, a first century tomb, so from round about the time of Jesus. And it was one of these ones with the the loculi, the little shafts, the tunnels. And they found one in there that was still sealed up at the end. And inside were the remains of the person who had died all that time ago. There were bones, there was hair, and there were fragments of fabric. And there's a most amazing quote. Now I'm quoting here from um, a paper that I read on a burial textile from the first century in Jerusalem and so on. I can give you the reference to that if you particularly would like to read this paper. But the quote says, the discovery of textiles in the Jerusalem area is rare due to high levels of humidity that do not usually allow for the preservation of organic material. Insects probably caused the few holes. There were various holes in the fabric. The textiles are carbonised and were also damaged by the relative humidity of Jerusalem and by body fluids. Because they were arranged in layers when the body was wrapped and stuck together, it was impossible to separate without causing damage. The lopculus, this is the uh, little tunnel the body was in, extended for 1.6 metres. Some parts of the body were covered with a number of textile layers. The head of the deceased 
was also covered with the remains of a 16 by 16 centimetre squared textile that was found adhered to the hair in one layer and apparently surrounded it. And I just thought that was interesting that there was this, seemingly there was this square of fabric. Oh, I don't have my quote. So in John, John chapter 20, verse 7, it says that when John looked into the tomb, he saw the grave cloths lying there, and the cloth that had covered Jesus' face was separate and folded to one side. And I thought the fact that this quote says that this body had a 16 centimeter squared textile over the face was just the same as had happened to Jesus. Now, with these other, the other thing about these textiles was that they could tell, just from the way the fibres were spun, that were woven to make this textile, that in fact they must have been imported, probably from Italy or somewhere, and if they were imported fibres, this was expensive fabric that wrapped this body. So this too goes along with this idea that Joseph had used this new linen to wrap Jesus in. You know, that you did your best for someone, even after they died. And I'm going to uh, hand back to Andrew. Don't work the whole map, doesn't it? They'll see it when they actually, and when you get to there. Yeah, and not saying that this was the actual discovery of the the the. the the cloth over Jesus' face, but this is an example of the kind of thing that was done, which really um, lends credibility to the fact of it, that kind of thing being done for Jesus. So I want to talk about what's called the Jerusalem factor. And this is a very interesting and very, very powerful argument for the truth of the resurrection. Hardly anyone denies that Jerusalem was the birthplace of the earliest Christian preaching. People who are atheists will admit this. It was where Christianity came from. They also agree that it started very soon after the death of Jesus. So this would be the least likely place to teach the resurrection if Jesus' grave just a short distance away, were still occupied. You wouldn't be able to get away with a religion that was based on the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead if it was possible to go a brief walk and actually verify in person that he was still there. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting and useful way of supporting the, the truth of the scriptures. And once, once again, there would be thousands of eyewitnesses of, to all the things that had happened whose testimony you could compare. You didn't just have to listen to one. You could talk to them all and see if there was an agreement about what happened. And so uh, this is why it's useful to, to understand exactly where the crucifixion and burial took place. And I'm going to hand over to Anne to talk about that. Right, oops, Jesus' tomb. So, we know a number of things about Jesus' tomb. From the scriptures, we know 
that it must be outside of the city. We also know that it was near the site of the crucifixion. We know that it was cut into rock. We also know from what we've just said that it was this bench type of of uh, burial chamber. We know it was new, so presumably there were no other. I I think the whole thing was new, and there were no other bodies in there at all. But you know that's just my idea. And we also know that it was closed by a stone. So you know, could, could we go out? And to Israel and find it now? No, but we can find tombs that are like this. So this description in the scriptures of what Jesus' tomb is like is, is quite realistic. It's perfectly reasonable that this is what his tomb would be like. And people over the years have tried to identify where Jesus' tomb is. Now in 1882, a, a, a very enthusiastic gentleman called General Gordon, who was a bit of a British hero at the time, He found a little hill, uh, which is in Jerusalem now, but in those days would have been outside of the city wall. And you've probably seen pictures of it online. It's kind of rocky. And if you just catch the formations in the rock at the right angle, you can think it looks like a skull. Although it's a bit like seeing the man in the moon. It depends which way you're looking and what direction you think the skull is pointing. But... Landscape can change. Bits of rock can fall off rock formations. People can dig bits out. Things can weather. They can erode. Things can crumble. Who, although it looks like, looked like a skull in 1882, who knows what it looked like in the year 30, 33 AD. It may not have looked like that at all. So that's not necessarily a good indication. He thought he had found Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he said, look, it looks like a skull. And the other thing that helped him think this was exactly the right place was just around the corner was a tomb in front of which appeared to be a garden. And here's this, this, this tomb and inside there are apparently benches to put bodies on. And he thought this is great. Well, they're not actually benches when you look closely. They're more like little troughs. But that's another, that's more information than we need right now. But there are lots of other tombs burrowed into that same outcropping of rock there are numerous other tombs and they've all been dated and they basically date from the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah so they couldn't be the new tomb that Joseph put Jesus body into and although this tomb in which is called the garden tomb oh sorry I'm not although uh this t- seems to have a groove across the front of it for where a rock would roll quite nicely. That was added much, much later after Jesus' death and is probably either an irrigation trough or for watering animals or something, but it wasn't even contemporary with Jesus' time. So very sadly, although it seems like a beautiful story, that actually can't really be the right place. So in the Bible, it says that they took Jesus to Golgotha, the place of the skull. But you know, I honestly never realised this until recently. If you read through all the gospel accounts, nowhere does it say that the crucifixion happened on a hill. It just says they took Jesus to the place of the skull. So there is no hill of Calvary. We're going to have to rewrite an awful lot of hymns now. But anyway, 
maybe it had that name because it was a place of execution. I mean, that would be a pretty graphic name for a place of execution. Maybe if you sort of, it was, maybe in some aspect of it, it was the shape of a skull. Who knows? Places get names for all kinds of strange reasons. But anyway, the traditional time, the traditional site of both Golgotha and Jesus' tomb is underneath what today is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Sepulchre is just a word for a grave or a tomb or something, fancy word. And it's this massive, massive church with gold and candles and huge numbers of buildings and it's, um, it's administered by a number of different religious groups. It's sort of, you know, and they all take their turns at doing this, that and the other, sometimes happily, sometimes acrimoniously, but it's this massive, massive complex. However, underneath it, right down, I don't know, underneath, in the rock that it's built on, there are some tombs. Now this is like close up, this is, these aren't very tall, these look as if you could walk right into them, but these are actually what's left of a tomb chamber with those sort of endways on type of burial niches in the wall. And this is all that's left, like the whole rest of the room and the roof and everything, but there are these two left. Now these are the right date for the time of Jesus' burial, but as we all now know, they're not the right shape. So, we'll come back to this. So, is this tradition of this being the place of Jesus' burial and the site of the crucifixion? There's some sort of lump of rock inside this church that's said to be, this is the site of Calvary. I mean, really, they would be literally within spitting distance of each other, but I'm not sure they were that close in reality. But anyway, is this, tra is this traditional site the right place or is it just a myth? Well, let's look at this map. That's my close-up map. Oh, no, it's not. Okay. This is Jerusalem. The black walls are the walls of the city in the time of Jesus. And those, most of those walls no longer exist. And some of them, we're not quite sure exactly where they ran, but this is, this is close enough. And you can see that the yellowy coloured dot at the top of the map is actually where General Gordon found the site that he called the place of the skull and the tomb, which we realise were the wrong date and couldn't be it. This other red dot is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, is Jesus' uh, tomb under there. So... Let's think about this. Back in the day, when Jesus was buried, the Christians at the time, and Jesus' family and everybody, even though Jesus was raised from the dead, and they knew the tomb was empty, they would remember where it was. So people would know where this tomb was. But 40 years later, the Romans, in AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. In fact, they destroyed it so thoroughly, it was hardly possible to live there. So... But, however, people, I'm pretty sure, still remembered where this tomb was. The tomb itself, I'm sure, wasn't destroyed because it was like a... It was built in the side of... Basically built into the side of what had been a quarry. Then, in AD 1, 135 or round about then, so about 60 years later, Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian comes along and he decides to rebuild Jerusalem. 
but he rebuilds it as a Roman town. And he names it Aelia Capitolina. Aelia was one of his, or Aelia was one of his family names. And he called it Capitolina because his favourite god of all was Jupiter Optimus Maximus Capitolinus. And so he put this name in to show that, you know, he really identified with Jupiter. Now he decides that he's going to build a temple to Venus. And so he filled in the area where Jesus' tomb was. So on this map, where the red dot is, from there down to the, the city wall where the X is, he filled all that in with soil to level it off so he could build his temple over the place where, where Jesus' tomb was. I don't, it's difficult. Some people say he was doing this deliberately, but he wasn't an emperor who was particularly mean to Christians. It's, it, he just felt, I think, that this was some special sacred site and he would make it sacred to some of his favourite gods. So he, he built a temple there over Jesus' tomb and he'd levelled the land so the tomb is now buried. So let's fast forward 200 years. Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian. What does he want to do? He wants to find Jesus' tomb. So he sends a man round. They ask the bishop of Jerusalem, where is this tomb? And the bishop of Jerusalem says, dig under the temple of Venus. So down comes the temple. They dig and bingo, there's a tomb cut into the rock. Now they had an interesting view of how to preserve things back in those days. So they cut away all of the rock, leaving this one little bump, but inside it was the tomb of Jesus. And that's, those are the tombs I showed you in the, the, underneath the, t- the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They were collateral damage when all this rock was dug away so that they could build a massive church over this, what was the tomb of Jesus. So time rolls on and 300 years later, the Muslims take over the city, but actually they were They just let the Christians keep their holy sites. That was fine. Until one particularly vindictive caliph came along in the year 1009 and he ordered the destruction of the temple, of the the church of the Holy Sepulchre and the destruction of the tomb. I'm not sure it was completely raised to the ground, but it was severely damaged at that point. So at this point, there's not much left to indicate where Jesus was buried. And later and later we have the Crusades and they retake Jerusalem and they're all feeling very holy and they rebuild this church and the church has been rebuilt and had bits added and all sorts of things over the centuries. And so it now looks nothing like (laughs) what it did in the time of Jesus. So is it the site of Jesus' tomb? Just because something is tradition doesn't mean we should dismiss it as rubbish. It means that we investigate it with caution. And I think we can't be certain, but probably that is the place where Jesus was buried. And that tradition has had a long, long, long unbroken line over centuries that that is the place. It wasn't suddenly discovered in 1642 or something. It's, it's been a long, long tradition. So probably that is where Jesus was buried. But, you know, he's not there now, so really. Now, what about the actual site of the crucifixion? So you can see on the map here, I've got a dot for the, the probable site of Jesus' tomb, and then just below that, I've got an X. 
for the probable site of the crucifixion. Now, why there? That whole area that incorporates those two, my dot and the, the X sign, was actually a flat area surrounded by these sort of rocky walls of what had been a quarry. And <clears throat> the Romans, when they crucified people, they liked to do it in very public places, especially beside roadways, major thoroughfares, where everyone going by would see these people dying a horrible death. It was sort of Roman shock and awe. You know, behave yourself or this will happen to you. People had to be able to read the inscription that Pilate had put above the cross. So it must have been visible from a road. And although my blob for the site of uh, the Church of the Resurrection appears there to be right next to the road, in fact, it's quite a way back from where that... These are where the roads would have been in Jesus' time. And you can see, it says in, it, it says in uh, Paul's writings about Jesus being crucified outside the gate. Um, well, there is a gate. There was a gate into the city right there. There were two roads. It was the, a meeting of two roads. That would have been an ideal site for Roman crucifixion. And it's near to the tomb. And another interesting story is that some, somewhere about... Uh, sometime after this Roman city was built, there was a road put across there. And... People have written that, oh, that road now covers the site of the crucifixion. But this was written like only a couple of hundred years after Jesus. So there was this tradition that, in fact, that was the site of the crucifixion. So we don't really know, but that would be the most likely candidate. So I'm going to pass back to Andrew. Thank you, Anne. I'd like to end with the talking about the earliest gospel message uh, and ask, why is it that more and more sceptical scholars are admitting the evidence for Jesus' death, his burial, and even his resurrection. These aren't Christians. These are people who are sceptical, and yet they're admitting the evidence is so overwhelming. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians. And this passage I'm reading to you, even atheists agree that Paul wrote, there was somebody called Paul, and he wrote 1 Corinthians, that's pretty well attested, um, and that it was written around this, around this time. Now, one thing is very interesting. We can look at some context in Acts chapter 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for, one, for a year and a half, teaching God's message to the people, while Gallio was governor of governor of Achaia, some of the Jewish leaders got together and grabbed Paul. They brought him into court. Now, Roman historical records tell us that Gallio was governor for only a year, and that was 51 to 52 AD. So that pretty much exactly matches Paul's visit to Corinth. 
And this is agreed by you know secular historians as well because it's such a precise time fix. You've nailed it down <coughs> to a year. So bearing that in mind, let's look at what Paul writes to the Corinthians after he's visited them. And he writes this probably a few years later. Now I want to make clear for you brothers and sisters the gospel that I preached to you, in other words, back in that particular moment, a few years previously, that you received and on which you stand, and by which you are being saved, uh, if you hold firmly to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received. Now these words are very important. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, um, the way that part, in, I put it in black there, in the middle, the way that that's written is in a, way, in a way that's kind of a rhythmic way in the Greek. It's written in a kind of a rhythmic way, as if it was something you would memorize. And uh, historians, both Christians and non-Christians, when they see this, they say this is the earliest statement of what Christians believe. And it, that's it, in a nutshell. And Paul, in fact, introduces it that way, because in verse 1 he says, this is the gospel I preach to you. This is how you are saved. This is what you believe. Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised. So, um, this, the, when, Paul, when did Paul receive this? He says here, uh, uh, this is the first importance, which I also received. What's he referring to? Well, it's interesting to look at a timeline here. Um, we can see an interesting timeline. Um, even the skeptic Bart, Bart Erdman says you can trace this, this message to one year after the cross, to within a year after the cross. And this is how he argues. Jesus was died and, uh, died and was raised around between 30 and 33 AD. And we know we can be that precise because of the dates Pilate existed as governor and the dates of Tiberius. And so those two narrow it down to a very, very short time, probably 32 AD uh, for his death. And this is generally agreed. Like I say, Bart Erdman agrees this, with this. <laughs> Paul met up with Peter around 35 AD after his conversion and his time in the wilderness. And it tells us, Paul tells us it was to make sure they had the same gospel. So you can imagine the meeting and, and Paul is, is telling um, uh, Peter about his experiences and Peter is saying, yeah, and this is what I saw and, and he, re- he was raised and he appeared to me and they're, they're really, they're really um, tying up what they mean by the gospel at this point. And Paul was preaching this then in 51-52 AD, which is what we read of later. And this is, the evidence here then is that when Paul says, this is the message I received, he's talking about this experience he had with Peter very, very soon after the cross. So if this is the case, 
We have historians saying, saying, and this is E.P. Saunders, one of the world's leading historians, he's not a believer, right out of the gate, all of the basic teachings about Jesus were in place. The very earliest preaching was the cross, the resurrection, and the divinity of Jesus. It didn't develop hundreds of years later. It was there, and he and others would look to this passage then in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. So I want to end by asking, what difference does it make? What difference does this make? That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the key. As E.P. Saunders said, you know, he's God, he died, and he's raised from the dead. There's one of my favorite hymns, which we sing, has a line, the hymn is called Rock of Ages, and it has a line, Be for sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. This is a beautiful summary of, of this, this, uh, these verses. Because the guilt of sin was dealt with in Jesus' death. When Jesus died, he died the just for the unjust. He died as someone who'd done no sin, taking a punishment for sin, for our sin, on his behalf. So when we see Jesus dead, we see Jesus in the tomb. He's in the tomb as a sign that our guilt has been lifted off us and put on him. He's carried it. He's paid the price. And so the tomb is a picture of our guilt gone in his death. And then, cleansing me from its guilt and power, the power of death is destroyed in Jesus' resurrection. Jesus broke that power so that we can have that power broken in us. And I want to close by saying that when you look at the evidence for the resurrection and the evidence for Jesus' death and all of the stuff that we have that's, that's really just very difficult to argue against, there are actually many, very few people who, uh, who disagree with it because of the facts. Usually people who don't follow Jesus, the, the reason is because they've been disappointed in some way. For example, C.S. Lewis started off um, believing in Christianity and then his mother was sick and died and he prayed that she wouldn't die and she did and he was so upset about that he turned away from Christianity but then he started examining the evidence and he genuinely became a Christian and because of the evidence but many people who don't follow Jesus the reason is not because of the evidence it's for other reasons maybe they think Christians are hypocrites or there's something else about it but I want to end by challenging you and saying, what about you? What is your plan for death? What is your plan? Jesus' plan for a grave was a very temporary one because he was out of it soon. What's your plan? What's your plan? We, we see death all around us at this time. How are you going to survive that? Because Jesus gives us, in this amazing gospel here, a way that death can be defeated, our guilt can be lifted off,
So when we raised from the dead and we stand before God in the final judgment, he sees no sin in us whatsoever. And we receive this simply by asking Jesus that he would forgive us and trusting him that he would do that. And if you're a Christian, we can sometimes be living in guilt and not living in the victory that we need to live in. And so for us, we can still look at Jesus' tomb and the fact that it's empty. And we can say, there is my future. There is my future. I won't be there. I will be free in glory with Jesus. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, God, for the empty tomb. Thank you, God, that Jesus died literally and physically. And his tomb was empty because he was raised from the dead. That he destroyed the guilt of our sin and he destroyed the power of death that we could have life. Lord, may all of us live in that power. Amen.